you want to get out your sermon outline. There's a lot of Scripture, so it's a little small. So you may want to get out your Bibles, too, um, so that you can follow along. So that would be great. We're going through two chapters today, chapters 34 and 35 of Jeremiah, and uh, they're somewhat long, so we're going to sort of read them as we go through them. And uh, But you'll want to turn there, have that open, um, and if you can handle the small print, you can use your outline, otherwise get your Bible or your preferred electronic device. Um, but let's begin where the word of prayer, and then we'll jump into it. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and all the time we need it. We need to know that everything that we need for faith and for faithfulness comes from you. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it's the word of the Lord. Thank you for the book of Jeremiah, and it's constant calling us back to you. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen, amen. On October 4th, 1997, close to a million men gathered in Washington, D.C. to declare themselves promise keepers for the Lord. It was the big national promise keepers conference on the mall in downtown D.C. About a dozen of us from Potomac Hills went. How many of them are still here? Mark is here. Is anybody else here that went? Mark Hunter, were you there? You don't remember? <laughs> the uh, Jed is gone. Jed was there. So there's only a few of us uh, here. Um, I was here for about 10 months at that time. And so we all went down there to the mall. And uh, Bill McCartney is a college football coach. He began this ministry for men, and it grew to become quite large at the time. And the premise of Promise Keepers is that men should apply their Christian faith to their responsibilities to love their wives and children. And McCartney also made a strong push to overcome racism in Christian organizations, reaching out to men of different ethnicities and all different kinds of churches, and moreover, there was a strong emphasis on repentance from past failures and to trust Christ to change your life. And it was an amazing commentary on modern life, somewhat prophetic, I think, uh, in a sad way, uh, when secular groups questioned the motives and values of promise keepers. And some were particularly strident, stating on national television that the goals of promise keepers were detrimental to the freedom of women and the movement was a servant to right-wing causes. I kind of laugh about that now because I think if Promise Keepers were still active today, it would be attacked by those same groups as toxic and evil. Um, so it was actually much less strident then. Lest we forget, the purpose of Promise Keepers was to call men to be obedient to the claims of the gospel and to take responsibility for their own spiritual lives and to care for families in a more godly manner. Those are not new principles. They're basic evangelical views and classic Christian teaching. And in a perceptive comment, 
that wound up being published in several uh, major national newspapers. Dr. Martin Marty, who's a church historian at the University of Chicago, uh, not considered a great evangelical, but a brilliant historian, uh, he said, perhaps the promise keepers are simply who they said they were, men seeking to be faithful to the gospel by keeping promises they made before God to be responsible in their spheres of influence, family, work, society. And such men would not be anti-women or right-wing zealots or puppets for sinister causes. After all, the core tenets of the movement were conservative in nature. Dr. Marty's point is an important one at a time, especially today, uh, some 12 years later, or uh, 20, um, 22 years later, when all such commitments and allegiances and promises seem to be temporary, or they all come with strings attached. And you don't have to agree with the theological underpinnings of promise keepers to see the value in keeping promises that one has made before God. And such a debate, I think, today illustrates the cost of discipleship for Christians, as well as the nature of social commitments in a highly individualistic culture. So faithfulness to God will look strange in a world that's dedicated to individual freedom and moral relativism. And in such a world, people look for their own advantage and see a plot whenever they see people living by faith in community and acting out of moral convictions. But a community of faithfulness is what God has called his people to be. You have to remember, most of the commands, most of the obligations presented by the scriptures are given to the community, not to the individual. They're presented to the church. This is who we, as individuals who make up this larger body known as the church, are to live. You know, and it's always easier to make some sort of public ritual of moral obligation, like a covenant to release slaves in Jeremiah's day, or perhaps the signing of a statement affirming Christian sexual ethics in our day, that's always easier than it is to keep personal promises made before God and then to carry through on those commitments. But God's called his people to be people of their word because, first of all, they're supposed to be people of his word. And repentance and believing the gospel are not negative acts but positive responses to a higher calling. God's people are called to honor him by keeping the promises they make in his name. So promises, convictions, covenants is what Jeremiah 34 and 35 are all about. And now these chapters are a little tricky because Jeremiah 35 happens 10 years before Jeremiah 34. But it's intentionally placed here uh, probably by Jeremiah, as an illustration of what could happen but didn't. So we'll start with Jeremiah 34, which reveals the people of Israel as promise breakers. Promise breakers. For starters, what's happening here is important. And what's happening is that King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, has freed all the slaves. But why that's happening is critical for understanding um, this chapter because the Bible doesn't directly tell us why he made this Emancipation Proclamation, but it appears there are several reasons. First of all, they're at war. Verse 1, 
the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. The strength of the Babylonian assault is indicated by the repetition of the word all. All his army and all the kingdoms and all the peoples were fighting against all of its cities. And in the end, only Jerusalem and two other cities are holding on. Verses 6 and 7. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah. For these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. So the terror of the Babylonian attack is actually captured in the Lachish letters. It's one of the great finds of biblical archaeology. They're written on pieces of broken pottery, and they're found in the ashes of the fire that destroyed the city in 587 B.C. And you can go there today. I have, and it's on this hilltop, and it's still littered with broken pottery and broken walls. And, um, and you can go there and see that. And these letters represent urgent messages from military commanders in the field back to the garrison commander at Lachish. And one letter in particular contains these words. And let my Lord know that we are watching for the signals of Lachish according to all the indications which my Lord has given, for we cannot see a Zika. That pottery artifact was a huge find because it gave us a direct archaeological link to Jeremiah 34. We actually have written in pottery a direct link to this biblical text. We don't have a huge number of those, but the more stuff they discover there, uh, the more we get. But it also helps us to understand Zedekiah is losing the war. He's coming under siege. There's only two cities left, and they're falling. And this siege may explain why he decided to free the slaves. Perhaps there isn't enough food to feed the slaves. They're under siege. They're cut off. So it's probably not great generosity on his part. It's more go fend for yourselves. Or maybe he's trying to win them over so they'll help defend the city. You know, we don't know. I think most likely he freed the slaves in a last-ditch effort to appease God before the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. That seems to fit the context of these chapters the best. Because after all, Jeremiah has just given him a promise of life, which sounds like it should be good, but it's not so much. Verses 2 through 5, because actually it's a promise of a peaceful death. We look at those verses. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you. 
You shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Now this promise actually offers little comfort. And it appears Zedekiah is trying to avoid death altogether by freeing the slaves, but it's back to reality time. See, the last four chapters that we've been in have given us all these soaring promises for the future of Israel beyond the judgment, after the exile, looking towards the future that still lies ahead of us. But now we're sort of jolted back to the imploding present, the besieged city of Jerusalem. And the situation's desperate. Nebuchadnezzar has invaded. He's destroyed everything in his way. He's finally come to Judah. He's destroyed the land. And Jeremiah's message is not new. We know from chapter 32, it's become his settled conviction, the fate of the city is sealed. They're not going to win. He's told them that several times. The Babylonians are here. They're going to take it. And therefore, so is the fate of King Zedekiah. And verse 3 repeats his prediction that Zedekiah would not escape capture, but he gets a face-to-face encounter with the Babylonian king prior to being taken to Babylon. And verses 4 and 5 give us this straight predictive promise that Zedekiah's death in Babylon would be in peace, which means he would die a natural death that he wouldn't be executed. However, we know from several chapters later in the book that dying in peace isn't the same thing as living in peace. Zedekiah is going to be forced to witness the execution of his sons, and then he's going to be blinded and shackled so their deaths would be the last thing he ever sees. And he's going to end up dying alone in a Babylonian prison. And from the beginning of Zedekiah's reign, Jeremiah has made it unmistakably clear that Nebuchadnezzar is actually carrying out God's plans, and the best path for Zedekiah is to surrender to submit to Nebuchadnezzar and thereby submit to God. And even now that the siege has begun, it's actually been going on for a while, it's not too late. To surrender the city would spare it from the horrors to come. And it would spare Zedekiah the treatment that he's going to receive at the bitter end. But as you probably know, Zedekiah doesn't listen. He loses the chance of having a less painful end. But it does seem that he makes this last-ditch attempt to avoid the inevitable. Maybe if he makes a covenant before God to free the slaves, despite having ignored everything that God has said for the last 33 chapters, maybe this time God would save them. And so Zedekiah makes a promise of freedom, verses 8 through 10. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord After King Zedekiah had made a covenant, that's the key word, had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free as Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew his brother. And they obeyed. All the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant, that everyone would set free a slave, male or female, so they would not be enslaved again. 
they obeyed and set them free. And so the good citizens of Jerusalem not only free their slaves, but bind themselves by covenant before God, verse 9, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. All the people who enter into this covenant agree that they'll free their slaves, verse 10, so that they would not be enslaved again. Whatever his motivations are, emancipation is the best proclamation that Zedekiah has ever made. Because slavery, as it's practiced among the people of God, is scandalous. It is a direct violation of God's law. Leviticus 25. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. And he shall serve with you into the year of Jubilee. Year of Jubilee, every 50 years, all debts are forgiven, everybody goes free. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. That's direct from the Lord. And the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee grant freedom to the captives. But because these people belong to God, they're not to be sold as slaves. Obviously, the Jews haven't been following the law because they have slaves to be freed. And so even the fact that he says we're going to free the slaves is an admission that we've actually been breaking the law for quite a while now that we have these guys in the first place. And so this time, they agree to free them. However, as one writer said, legalism is yesterday's obedience. It blinds us to the crucial issues of today. And yesterday, the people of Jerusalem obeyed the law. But apparently, it's nothing more than that. Yesterday's obedience. Because today, the promise is revoked. The promise is revoked, verses 11 through 16. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrews who've been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves." There's been a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of plan. They set them all free and then say, never mind. And they go and get them and bring them back and enslave them again. Why? Well, we get a clue down in verse 21. Because it says, the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. See, suddenly the Babylonians have withdrawn from Jerusalem. And that's explained in chapter 37. It says the army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt 
And when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. So the Babylonians hear that the Egyptians are coming. That's the other great world power. And so they redeploy to face the new enemy. And to the people of Jerusalem, it seems as if the danger has passed. It really hasn't, but they think it has. And so the people decide they want their slaves back. Yeah, we made a promise to God, but you know, that was yesterday's obedience. So at the end of verse 16, they forcibly brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Now, this passage is much more about covenants and promises than it is about slavery. Let's stop for a moment because it says something important about freedom. The leaders made a promise and they violated it. They established a covenant and they broke it. Unconditional release is followed by unexpected recapture. It could be argued that much the same thing happened at the end of the Civil War. The Emancipation Proclamation held out the promise of real freedom, but it took a long time for that promise to even begin to be fulfilled. Slavery gave way to lynching. Lynching gave way to Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow laws gave way to segregation. Segregation gave way to prejudice. And we can thank God for the great progress our country has made towards racial reconciliation. But prejudice persists to this day. And Zedekiah's actions teach us what a wicked thing it is to go back on a promise of freedom. It's not the main point of this chapter, but it's an important point. They not only break the covenant, they are going back on their word to their own people. And God is going to call them on it. And to think that our nation would get away with any similar thing is ludicrous. God will call us on it, and he has. But breaking the covenant is not just going back on your word. This text says, it's a means of profaning the name of the Lord. Verse 16, you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female uh, slaves. They made a covenant in God's house. And when they violate it, they profane God's name, adding the sin of perjury to the sin of slavery, both of which are contrary to the character of God. And God's told them that because back in verse 13, he used himself as an example. He said, I myself made a covenant with your, with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's a reminder that God always keeps his word. How can God's people be covenant breakers when God himself is a covenant keeper? And slavery is such a great sin that it carries serious consequences Go down to verses 17 through 22. And actually, I'm going to pick, I'm just going to read the first section uh, there. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. That You know, they talked about male and female slaves. God talks about brother and neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you, Liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Here's the key verse. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, 
I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the beasts of the air and uh, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. To understand this punishment, it helps to know that biblical covenants are not made, they're cut. Instead of signing a contract, the parties to the covenant take an animal and cut it in two and spread it out with a path in between it, and then they walk between the severed halves of the carcass. And they're making a promise that if they break the covenant, that this being cut in two is what will happen to them. They're taking a sacred oath, calling down curses upon themselves should they violate the terms of the covenant. And anyone who violates the covenant deserves to be cut off, dismembered, and left for the wild animals. And we know from history, this is how it happened throughout the ancient Near East. This is how they made treaties and covenants between countries, between greater kings and lesser kings. And so this was the common way to make a covenant or a contract. Now, some of you know that we just signed a contract to have some work done on our house. Can you imagine we're meeting with the contractor and we said, let's not do that old paper and pen contract signing thing. Let's do this. We'll cut some cats in half and walk between them. What do you say? I don't know. I think if the contractor is willing to do that, you're going to get really good service. <laughs> when Zedekiah makes the covenant before God in the temple, it's a ceremony of covenant renewal. It's based on the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 and the covenant renewal by Moses in Exodus 24. He's basically copying what Abraham and Moses did. And because God's a covenant keeper, he hates covenant breaking. If you belong to God, you must keep your word, meet your obligations, fulfill your vows, satisfy your contracts, and keep your promises. After all, you're the child of a promise-keeping king, the Lord God. And so now Jeremiah reminds them of the curses. Back to verse 18. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the cats that they cut in two. I may have a different version. Um, the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. In effect, Jeremiah says, your princes, your priests, you yourselves, you are the ones who pledged yourself to death by passing between the covenantal pieces. You said you're willing to die if you break the covenant. Well, you broke the covenant the very next day. And guess what? You're going to die. It's as if they don't even know how to keep their word or fulfill their vows or honor their oaths or be faithful to their promises. And so God, through Jeremiah, gives them an illustration of what it looks like to be a promise keeper. 
And that's chapter 35, Promise Keepers. We move on to this contrasting story. While the people couldn't keep their, con their, their promise for more than a few days, some think it was the next day, some think it may have been a few weeks. It takes a while for an army to redeploy. He basically says, come look at some people who've been keeping their promises far longer. After a lesson in unfaithfulness, now we get a lesson in faithfulness. But it starts with a test. And so we see the promise challenged, verses 1 through 5. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. So I took a couple people whose names I can't pronounce and all their brothers and sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdalia, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Massaseah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. So he's grabbed these people, the Rechabites, and he's brought them before the, into the temple before the people who work there. And in verse 5, I set before the Rechabites pitchers of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. Now, verse 1 lets us know this has already happened. Ten years earlier, and God's reminding Jeremiah to use it as an illustration to teach the people. Apparently, at one time, ten years ago, the prophet throws a reception at the temple in honor of the Rechabites. And the Rechabites arrived at the reception. They undoubtedly noticed the absence of food. There's no cheese. There's no hors d'oeuvres. It's just wine. Lots and lots of wine. And it must have been really awkward for the Rechabites. They're nomads. These are sort of the grubby refugees who seem like country bumpkins to the urban elites in Jerusalem. They didn't live in houses, and they didn't drink wine. The Rechabites are a clan who worshipped God in the manner of the patriarchs. They tried to live as close as possible to the nomadic fashion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No crops, no vineyards, no houses, no towns, no cities. Those all tied people to a place. And the Rechabites felt that bred luxury, strife, materialism, idolatry, all manner of soft, lazy extravagance, very different from a hard, disciplined life of herdsmen who live under the desert skies. So they're like Bedouins who are desert nomads, but they're also like the Amish who live an incredibly simple lifestyle. Amish Bedouins. It's the best way to describe them. You can even put those two things together. So they're like Amish without the pacifism and Bedouins without the camels. And Jeremiah puts pitchers of wine in front of them, and it's a test to their whole way of life. And you can imagine, they're all standing there looking at all this wine, knowing they're not allowed to drink wine. And they pass the test. Starting at verse 6, the promise kept. But they answered, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, 
You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard. But you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we're living in Jerusalem. The amazing thing about this is the Rechabites had kept their promises for over 200 years. Jonadab, son of Rechab, is one of the 7,000 in Israel who didn't bow the knee to Baal during the days of Elijah all the way back in 1 Kings 19. So when the Rechabites show up for happy hour at the temple, Jonadab's been dead for more than two centuries. Can you imagine keeping a promise that long? It was approximately 243 years. Now, 243 years ago for us puts us in 1776. And in 1776, George Washington issued a general order on profanity. August 3rd, 1776, he published the following general order. This is true. I'm not making this up. The general is sorry to be informed that the foolish and wicked practice of profane cursing and swearing, a vice hitherto little known in our American army, <clears throat> is growing into fashion. He hopes that the officers will, by example as well as influence, endeavor to check it, and both they and the men will reflect that we can little hope of the blessing of heaven on our army if we insult it by our impiety and folly. Added to this, it is a vice so mean and low, without any temptation that every man of sense and character detests and despises it. Signed, George Washington, general of the army. Can you imagine Americans having to keep that order today? Can you imagine yourselves having to keep that order? Some of you aren't going to clear the parking lot today. 243 years later, the same length of time as the Rechabites. How would we do? I don't think we would do too well. And the whole point of the illustration is to show the contrasts and the consequences. We go to the end of chapter 35, <clears throat> starting at verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. 
I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. We've been given a study in contrasts. Jeremiah 34 takes place during the reign of Zedekiah, shortly before the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. Jeremiah 35 is a flashback to the reign of Jehoiakim at least a decade earlier. And the contrast shows the differences between promise breaking and promise keeping. Zedekiah is a promise breaker. And it's actually worse than we thought because he had a promise with Nebuchadnezzar, which he broke, which is what started this whole stupid war in the first place. But after freeing the Hebrew slaves, he changes his mind and revokes his emancipation proclamation. In contrast, the Rechabites are promise keepers. They understood that keeping covenant means keeping one's word no matter what, no matter how long. And the promise breaking of the Israelites has been exposed by the promise-keeping of the Rechabites. It's one of the only places they're mentioned. They're only mentioned three times in the Old Testament, and this is where we learn the most about them. And they're specifically here to show up the Israelites. And the point of Jeremiah 35 is we're supposed to hear and obey the word of the Lord. The contrast between the faithfulness of the one and the unfaithfulness of the other is clear. The Rechabites did what their founding father told them to do. The Israelites refused to do what their heavenly father told them to do. And God's gotten tired of their unfaithfulness. And the problem with God's people is they're bad listeners. Jonadab gave his commands hundreds of years before, and his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons and his great-great-grandsons we're still keeping them. God spoke to his people nearly every single day. The prophets are still coming to warn them of the dangers of following other gods, and they refuse to pay attention. And so they pay the penalty, picking up at verse 17. If you look there. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, and they have not listened. I have called to them, and they have not answered. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of God, the, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. That's a remarkable promise. Their faithfulness, understood as a model of godly perseverance, is rewarded with the promise of future and continual service before the Lord. And the point of these two chapters side by side is to contrast the cynical breaking of a recent promise with the exemplary faithfulness to an ancient one. They're very human stories. 
but they're intended to illustrate contrasting attitudes to God and the obligations of those who claim to be in a covenant relationship. And the consequences are dramatically different. So what does all this mean for us today? Or is it just a neat historical lesson? Because if we're honest, it's easy for us to see that we haven't done very well at keeping our own covenant promises. Whether those are marriage vows, baptism vows, ordination vows, or membership vows where we made our profession of faith. In one way or another, either through our actions or our attitudes... We are people who have broken our promises. And so now that begs the question, who pays the penalty? Yeah, now we're back to cutting up cats. Do you remember the covenant Abraham made with God back in Genesis? Whoever walks through the pieces had to pay the penalty. Take a quick look, Genesis 15, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. These two words, smoking firepot and flaming torch, both appear when God descends on Mount Sinai, which means these are symbols of God's immediate presence. This is God himself showing up. And then verse 18, the first part says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. It's been made, it's done, the covenant's cut. And it's not just amazing who walks through the pieces, but who doesn't. Abraham doesn't. The Lord touches him and puts him in a deep sleep, so he can't. And for God to say, I will bless you and pass through the pieces, I will bless you even if it means being torn to pieces. He's saying, not only will I pay the penalty if I'm not faithful to the covenant, I'll pay the penalty if you're not faithful to the covenant because your faithfulness has nothing to do with this blessing. This blessing is coming to you unconditionally and I will be torn to pieces either if you fail or I fail. I'll be torn to pieces so I can still bless you. This is an unconditional covenant of grace. This is a covenant that says you can be absolutely sure this is going to happen, whether you fail or not, whether I fail, but I won't, but if I do, I will pay the penalty. God is saying this grace comes to you unconditionally. How could God do this? Well, you know how this works out, right? Mark 15, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. When Jesus went to the cross, darkness came down again, the thick darkness of terror and dread. Isaiah 53, speaking of Christ as a suffering servant, says he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. What does that mean? That's covenant language. He was cut off. He died. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, experienced all this so he could bless you even when you fail him so that your salvation would be absolutely unconditional. Such is the cost of God's astounding oath. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. 
The same Christ looks at you with all of your covenant-breaking sin and is determined to love you through all of it. And yet every time you've ever broken your promise, that's been forgiven, that's been cleansed, that's been paid for at the cross by him who loves you and has freed us from our sins by his blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so for your freedom and your forgiveness, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's why as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's why when you come to this table, the Lord's Supper is our reminder that God keeps his promises to those like you and me who can't keep ours. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you that you continue to speak to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we are promise breakers. We would rather take the immediate benefit than wait for the eternal blessing. Give us a greater desire to know your word, to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation of our lives and to believe that it comes from your hand. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being unfaithful to your word. Forgive us for treating people as possessions and possessions as priorities. Continue to work in us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and hear what he hears, teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, and an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises, knowing that they have found their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.